All right. Good evening, everyone, and thank you very much for joining us tonight. Um, for those that can do, and tonight uh, we're joined by Greg Tolpigeon, who is the head crop trader and funds manager at Glen Eagle Securities. Uh, he's been a trader for a long period of time, worked at Citigroup, Bankers Trust, Macquarie Bank, um, done a range of different things, and we're here tonight to explore a little bit of that and uh, get some insights from Greg as all session. Welcome, Greg, by the way. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolute pleasure, and good evening, Ivan. Finally, you uh, updated my actual title. <laughs> After you complained about you had to complain about it a couple of times, but um, yeah, it's fine. See, so we're we're joined by the esteemed CEO of Open Markets. Um, <laughs> so, all right. Now, any advice contained in tonight's presentation, general only, doesn't take into consideration your personal circumstances. You need to decide for yourself whether it's appropriate for you and past returns and not an accurate indicator of future returns. Uh, and if you're going to trade, um, it's a risky game, so you need to know what you're doing. And uh, if you don't, you will lose money. That's probably the best disclaimer we can put on that. And these sessions, tonight's session, as we run these every week, and we invite in uh, different uh, traders from different backgrounds, um, with be they market makers from the exchange, funds managers, uh, private traders, um, you know, we've had some of the biggest traders in Australia on, on, our, on our sessions, and it's an opportunity to ask them questions, have a discussion about what they think is important, what makes them successful, and what they think, um, you know, the drivers of success, and, um, you know, and, 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 and to really unpack that. And so um, thank you for taking the time for joining us tonight to everyone that's here. If you, you should have a question box open at the moment on your screen. If you don't, all you need to do is click on the uh, either red arrow or, or if you're operating with a mobile device, there should be a question mark at the bottom of your um, page there that you can uh, click on and that will give you a free run to ask questions. And while I say that, I really should um, actually open my question box so that I can uh, see if anyone's asking any questions. None so far. All right. So... Yeah, look, Greg, thanks for joining us. Could um, I ask by, you know, how did you get into trading? What made you choose this as uh, something that would seem like a smart idea to do? Well, it's funny. Um, I got it. Oh, I wanted to get into trading ever since and uh, something to do with the financial markets. Ever since I was, I was a, uh, probably a 12-year-old whenever I, when I first saw the movie Wall Street. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I think everyone sort of first saw Gordon Gecko and wanted to sort of emulate his successes and so forth, and I think I was roughly 10 or 12 years old, so um, I was a, uh, a failed attempted athlete um, who wanted to uh, grow up and, you know, live a life of uh, being a star athlete, and uh, when that failed, um, I had no choice but to, uh, to do the other uh, choice in my life, and um, I studied economics, obviously, and uh, maths at school, and and it was the only thing I ever wanted to do. So, um, in terms of an actual career, so I wanted to do something in financial markets. And I first started off wanting to be an economist, and then I eventually saw the light and got into trading. In your title, and, and, and it's a question that sometimes people ask: is you know, what is a prop trader? Um, and you, you're a prop trader and a funds manager. What's the difference between the both? And uh, you know. Look, I think um, one of the key differences between prop trading and funds management, and funds management tends to have a lot of 
rules and regulations about, you know, and mandates about what you can and can't do in terms of where you can invest, what you, uh, what certain percentages of your investment must always be invested in a particular index, etc. There's a certain sort of a larger group of rules around that. Prop trading is more about just trading what you see and being a lot more aggressive in terms of being a lot more concentrated in your portfolio. Obviously, you know, certain funds structure themselves to be similar to, to, to prop desks, but um, prop trading is more about trying to, um, and it's probably a little bit more active as well than fund managers. Fund managers are certainly looking, you know, traditionally probably more bottom-up than they are looking for sort of, you know, market dynamic changes. So, you know, there's, there's certainly two different elements to funds management and, uh, and prop trading. Uh, one of the advantages of obviously prop trading is you literally most of the time only need to report to one person as opposed to a, a sea of investors. And uh, so um, they come with their positives and, and, and negatives, but um, in the end they both have the same core you know, objective, which is to make money and yeah. do so with the, uh, the, the least amount of risk, which is uh, something that also gets overlooked by a lot of traders. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we, we talk about, um, you know, the different times the market lines up and is giving lots of signals and there are other times where that might not be giving you the leads. How do you manage that uh, as a professional whose job it is really, you know, would, would appear anyway, uh, to take positions? Um, look, um, the way I look at it is I come to, towards markets very, very differently. There are and, uh, and and people come into this industry and they they use a variety of different approaches and there's a, you know hugely different techniques. There's top down traders, there's stock traders, there's volatility traders, there's you know um, you know there's algorithmic traders. There's all sorts of different angles upon which you can sort of dissect the markets and certainly uh, you know produce a positive return and make and make money. Um, I tend to come more from uh, more of a psychological, more of a, for lack of a better word, more of a street-based sort of uh, card player, um, so to speak. I mean, I, you know, I always go back to sort of thinking to myself, you know, when the, the game of blackjack, when you're looking in a, in, a, in, a, in a game of, in a casino, and people think that when you count cards, it provides you such a huge advantage. And the reality is it only improves your probability by about 2 or 3%. But what it does is it does one of those things that is the core essence of what trading, you know, is about. And that is you bet bigger when the deck is hot and you bet small when the deck is cool. And obviously that's the same approach that you need to have with markets. I mean, people, you know, you need to not only take, take into account the potential return that you can make and, you know, obviously, you know, one of the first, you know, 101s of trading is, you know, your, your risk-reward ratio. But one of the things that gets often overlooked with risk-reward ratios is the probability. And that's the, that's the difference, um, you know, in terms of where, you know, the, way, the angle that I come from is when I see something that has a larger probability, then I'll take a much larger position and be a lot more active and the other times, cash is a position. People forget that there are, you know, you can be long, you can be short, or you can be in cash. And people forget cash is a position. And, you know, you talk to anybody during the GFC and, you know, okay, the average, you know, trader probably couldn't get short. But, 
you know, most people during that period would have been happy to be in cash. You go through the, the route of uh, February due to COVID and you can say that most people I would have been happy to be in cash. And so cash is often a, um, a position that is, that is overlooked. So to me, that's one of the, the key significant sort of, you know, things that people need to, you know, I guess focus on and traders focus on in terms of that, um, you know, they don't always need to be sort of, you know, having those positions in myself. Um, I always have that, that, that view, like I, I run, you know, meetings and, and, and consult to different funds and brokerage firms, et cetera. And I tell people that I don't have a view right now. I don't have a strong view. I have suspicions and this is what I'll be looking for or, you know, if the market, you know, it's, breaks up from through certain levels or breaks below certain levels, you know, but um, then, you know, we can begin to, you know, build a, a new view. But until you can, um, you know, become comfortable with telling and admitting to yourself that and others as well that there is no view or there isn't a strong view, then, um, you know, you, you, can, you can get caught up in, in constantly wanting to have some sort of view um, and trade that view and, and not really, you know, taking into account the probabilities of whether that view is actually going to, to come to fruition. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, I always come to think that, you know, there's really every year there's seven, five to sort of seven big opportunities to make money. You know, it's the 80-20 rule. 80% of your profits largely come from 20% of your trades. And there's, you know, five to seven big opportunities to make money. For example, the gold and silver run this year is a, is a, is a, is a good example most recently. And if you can capture three of those, you're going to have a good year. Um, and the idea is, is that throughout the year, you want to try and find those, where those five or seven are going to come from and try and capture three. Trying to capture all five is just, you're not going to do it, um, you know. Um, but if you can capture three, you'll have a very good year. If you can capture one, you'll have a, you know, pretty decent. Um, and then obviously around that you have your smaller trades and more active sort of, you know, stuff that you may do, or certainly I do, but, um, you know, you know, in terms of trying to maximize those big opportunities and, and, and that comes in with, again, trying to micromanage that uh, ability to have, um, you know, certain views and strong views and know when your views just really aren't um, worthy really to even talk about. Yeah. And and what do you cover? What do you look at? What do you trade? I've sometimes said when I'm uh, at a bar having a drink with some, some strangers, I'll bet on two flies, two cockroaches running up a wall as long as I know I can bet on the big one. Um, Look, I, I look. I look at everything, and I and I trade almost almost everything. But having said that, there are very certain rules that I abide to, and um, and and again, that becomes from knowing your personality. Like my personality is, yeah, I like to have a bet. I like to, you know, that's probably why I got attracted to this industry a lot. I like the unpredictable nature and trying to. Um, you know, uh, you know, solve that puzzle and come out the other side, you know, or, you know, in the right way. Um, so there are certain rules, though, that I have. Like, I'll look at anything and, 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 and I think that when you're becoming, you know, as a trader and you as you evolve, initially you start trading one instrument or one particular market and then you slowly evolve into to others. But there are certain rules, like I said, that I do have, and that only comes from knowing what my statistics are. I know the areas where, you know, if I trade this to this certain market too excessively, like for example, currencies, 
I don't make a lot of money out of currencies. Where I make my money out of currencies is two or three or four times a year, I'll put a currency trade on and I'll write a trend. The day-to-day intraday volatility of currencies, just it's a random walk. It's something that I just don't have the skill set for and I'm happy to admit it. Um, so, but I only will do three or four trades in currencies a year. Um, but, you know, they're generally when those probabilities I, I understand and, and I can see that, that there is a, a broader thematic that fits in with, you know, a larger view that I have. Um, you know, some other areas of the market I don't, I, you know, I don't touch, you know. I don't touch socks, like stock commodities. I mean, that's just, you know, it's embarrassing to sort of show some of my returns in that space. And, Again, that's the other thing, you know, there's there's so many guys in, in her, even in my office who, and, and I've been around for a long time, will continue to trade certain markets that just produce very little returns and they just have this you know, inclination. So I will trade, you know, most things um, over, over the course of the year, but uh, ideally I'm looking for, you know, those specific times when those opportunities can, can present themselves that fit in with, the type of returns and the type of um, um, you know, statistics of my trading that, that uh, fit in with um, that success. The majority of my trading is predominantly indices and individual stocks, um, and I, I do that globally, but predominantly both in the US and here in Australia are my two sort of you know, main two you know, areas of the market. Hey, Greg, so you, sorry? Like you, you look at itself? Like you look at a lot of different markets at the same time. So obviously, you know, you look at indices, you look at stocks, you look at a little bit less currencies, um, entities and whatever else. How do you keep on top of all of these markets? And what kind of trade size and length are you looking at typically? Obviously, not in dollar amounts in terms of um, positioning. Okay, so look, yes, I, I look at a lot of different things, um, but I look at them as part of a you know, a global um, picture or a global framework from which I can work with. So usually I start off with, with bonds. Um, if you know where bonds and interest rates are going and the flow of money, so to speak, from the Fed, etc., then and you can understand why the bond market is going to move in a certain de- direction, you're probably 80% of the way to understanding what the rest of the world is going to do because then you can then understand how different indices will react to that, different sectors, etc., Keeping on top of that, yeah, it's a it's a it's a constant twenty four seven job. I mean, um, but again, that's that's the part of. I mean, I always you know go back to sports because you know I have a sports a sports psychologist that I use um, was one of the best things I ever did in tra- in terms of my trading career, and we can you know obviously touch on that later. But the point being is is that you look at any successful athlete, and it's the ones that are the hardest workers. And the guys that are on top of, you know, technology in their sport, their new techniques, new training techniques, new things that they're trying, etc. They're the ones that go down in history as the, you know, the best ever. And obviously, you know, I don't think I'll go down in history as the best ever. But, you know, in the words of, I think it's 50 Cent or whoever it was, said, I'll die trying. So I'll, uh, and, and look, and, and you enjoy it. So again, I'll keep going. I'm, I'm sure and, one day Jack Schweiger will do an interview in the, in the new, new Market Wizards book about you. Like <laughs> <laughs> um, Greg, when you got started trading, you mentioned, you know, you went to uni and you studied and so forth. What was the 
you know, who are the people that kind of got you into, um, you know, get, getting really cracking? Was it, was it through a career opportunity or somebody you worked with? How did, how did well, you get started? Okay, so it's, a, um, it's, an, it's an actually an interesting story and it's worth spending a couple of minutes on it because it's an unusual story and my entry into the markets was very different. So I already had a job lined up with Citigroup as a junior economist before I'd even completed my HSC. And uh, what happened was, um, obviously, I wanted to be an economist initially, and I, w- I thought I'd go the same approach as, you know, your usual sort of, you know, when you will, will talk to your career advisor, they tell you you're going to go, you know, go to uni, get an economics degree, apply for a, um, a job, you know, and, and you go get it and, and so forth, and, and there you go. And so my father did ask me at one point, and he said, so how many other people do you think you're going to be competing with for this job? And it dawned on me that, you know, I wasn't just going to be competing with people my own age and, and my own experience level. Um, it's going to be all sorts of different. So what I decided to do was I'd buy the thin review and I'd come home after school and I would ring up every single person that was quoted in the thin review and ask them for some advice about a shortcut to get into the industry. And obviously this went through a pretty lengthy process throughout year 12 and uh, I got a lot of hang-ups and you're not a client and call back some other time and a lot of that sort of stuff. And I managed to get Grant Bailey, who was the chief economist of Citigroup on the phone. Had a long story short. He said, why don't you come in next week for a, you know, a bit of a chat? And I was so excited that someone was actually willing to talk to me that I was sort of saying, well, no, 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 I'm happy just to talk on the phone for five minutes. He said, no, come on in. So anyway, I went in and we started chatting about markets and economics, etc. And he, he turned to me and he said, look, I've got a whole bunch of resumes on my desk from uni students and I don't think any of them know as much as you do. So do you want a job here? Finish your HSC and the day after you can come and join us and start working here in uh, the economics department and you can start playing around with some of the currency ideas that you have, etc., etc. And you can do uni at nights. After a year of uh, being at Citigroup, um, I ended up getting a, uh, a role at um, Bankers Trust and I uh, worked there in the dealing room and that's where I was introduced to charting and I uh, became a technical analyst there. I worked with a uh, chartist there called Gordon Manning and uh, he was probably the person that was most influential on, uh, you know, on, on my career and certainly working with some of the best traders in the country at the time. Um, I learned a lot of the the skills that made a lot of those traders exceptional but at the same time I also witnessed a lot of the flaws that many of them had and uh, being exposed to them from a very 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 young age you know from you know my late teens 17 18 19 um, doing that sort of all day long you know from 6 a.m. till 6 p.m. these guys um, you know I started to pick on pick the good habits and Try to obviously um, avoid the bad ones that I saw that they made, and um, you know I've seen guys. You know, and earlier I saw guys up twenty million bucks. You know, in the year, you know, come March, and they, you know, the objective was to make twenty million, and then all of a sudden management starts saying you can make forty or fifty, and then of course come December he's lost it all, and so you know again you start to see when guys sort of you know start to push the envelope and they start taking bigger risks because they start drinking their own Kool Aid so to speak. And uh, become yeah. invincible, and the markets, you know, invariably teach you a lesson. Yeah, 
And for anyone that was starting off new, or I guess for anyone who's a trader, what sort of advice would you would you give someone? I'll break it into two. Someone who's coming in new, who's just about to get started, what advice would you give to, to them? Look, there's two. The, the first bit of advice is, is that, um, first of all, I would learn some of the techniques that you would like to use for trading. So obviously you'd be you know, learning some obviously charting. Um, stick to a market which you, know, you have some sort of understanding towards. And I always... I always question why people want to go into currencies. Um, I always think stocks is always the best place because they move a little bit slower. They tend to move with a little bit more reason and understanding. And once you can understand and, and, you know, and, you know, and there's a lot more different stocks to choose from as well. So again, I always find that stocks are always a better way to, to develop both your fundamental understanding, but also your technical um, analysis. That you can that, that you can approach, and obviously paper trading is the first thing that we start with. But the number one thing that you'll the biggest lesson will be that emo the ability to to control that emotion of when you're losing, that emotion yeah. that you experience when you're taking actual real risk, and it's a bit like you know, yeah, uh, you know, playing playing you know UFC on uh, on on. Uh, on your PlayStation and then getting in the ring. I mean, they're, they're completely two different things, and that's exactly the same thing here. You can sit there and be a couch potato and say what you what you want about uh, guys getting in the ring, but once you get in there, you start to understand that it's just not as easy to sit there and hold positions that you're losing money on. It's not, it's not. and that's the part where you know the it sorts it sorts the men from the boys, and so. Not diving in with too much risk and building up slowly is obviously one way of combating, you know, and, and understanding how that risk sort of feels. And, you know, and one of the key things is you just have to be able to sleep at night. Position sizing is very, very, is key. And, um, and also understand that your success doesn't always mean come from your own skills. So, for example... So uh, there's been a lot of new traders who've come into this market since COVID, and a lot of them have had a lot of success. But the reason why they've had success is because the market has provided them that opportunity with constant upside, um, constant big trends. Traders who traded during the tech bubble, for example, you know, they come in and they think that it's their skill set that's uh, that's uh, uh, that's producing those returns, not necessarily a huge sort of you know market opportunity. So again, you need to understand what kind of market you're in, and certainly to what degree you know the market opportunity is providing your big returns, or it's your, it's your it, or it's your actual skill level. Um, so, you know, so again, that's some of the things that um, you know, two or three key points that I think for newbies um, is is certainly worthy of concentrating. You you mentioned. Um, yeah, you had a. Um, I thought you said twenty four seven. I thought you don't sleep. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, look. Uh, in, 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 during COVID, I was actually just. Um, I was only ever taking forty five minute naps um, <laughs> throughout throughout a twenty four seven period, just because. Um, again, it's one of those things where you look back in your life and you look at back at uh, generations of trading, for example, and. Mm. I've always been of the belief that when there is certain 
opportunities, you have to be there um, to take advantage of them. You know, once in a decade type of opportunities, you have to be you have to be, um, and uh, sometimes you have to push the envelope. And I mean, again, you go back to sports. You know, leading into grand finals when fighters are you know go into fight camp. You know, six weeks before a big major title fight. I mean, there are no distractions. There are there is full focus, and uh, mm-hmm. the markets have provided us with you know some exceptional opportunities and. I don't want to be one of those people that turns around and goes, yeah, I, I, I didn't maximise that opportunity because I was tired. <laughs> Some of the other excuses that people use. I mean, you know, for me, I sometimes when you can see it, you've, you've got to play it. I just want to say one thing. So I just asked Greg the question before, um, and I wasn't actually sure whether he had a fund that was open for people to be able to participating but uh, he does I thought it was just purely prop so that's good news so if somebody's interested in that I think maybe if you can type into the chat box Greg what I'll do is I'll provide your details back to Greg and his team and they can send you some information about it but if you're interested in, in any of this in, in the funds or anything along that line just type in Greg and uh, we'll get uh, some information and across obviously works uh, Glen Eagle, which is the, the, the Mr. Lance Rosenberg's firm, which um, we're always happy to support those guys. Um, good outfit. So, all right. Now, um, on uh, Ivan, you had a question. Sorry, I'll let you ask your question. I did. I think I've got, I've got, I've got a whole heap, um, and, and I know you've still got a little bit of time as well in, in your allocated spot, Patrick. But hey, just quickly. So, one of the things that um, you've you've mentioned, uh, you, you were talking about, really. This kind of the second reincarnation of new traders coming in um, and having great success so far. The forums filled with people, you know, talking about, you know, I saw something this morning going. I've just, you know, it's taken a year of hard work, but I've just doubled my money. Um, I started, you know, I started a year ago, which obviously we all know how much harder that is. And I saw stats that uh, since COVID started, trader numbers doubled. So how does it play out? You know, you've got this, you've got Fed, you've got newbie traders on the buy side. What does it look like for the next three to six months in your view? And is it one of those opportunities now that you're talking about that you've got to be up, not sleeping, um, or is it kind of... Look, it's back in March during the height of the COVID um, it was one of those things which became quite clear that um, we were sort of getting a little bit of a replay post the GFC, except it was happening in super fast, fast, fast forward sort of motion in terms of everything was condensed. We had a, a very aggressive shutdown by uh, you know global governments, and uh, we had a very, very rapid response from the Fed. And the, the, the if and it, one of the things that I said. It was that it was going to create one of the biggest bubbles in history that we'll ever see, and it'll be predominantly tech-based. And um, you know, I've gone on the record to, of saying that back at the you know the height of the, the the March sort of pandemic. And if you were to write a list of all the things, and this is and I'm just you know repeating something that I, I've said several times. If you're going to re- write down a list of all the things that you would want to see to create a bubble, what would they be? <laughs> and you have all of them right now. So number one is you would want to see huge stimulus from the Fed, tick. 
what you would want to see is clear winners and clear losers in a market. So you look at the tech bubble in 99, you look at the the resources bubble and the, the housing bubble of 07. There's very, very specific sectors which win and as a result they attract more capital than any of the other sectors. You have that now. And then one of the third ones that you need is new guys to come into the market. <laughs> and the way that story always plays out, and unfortunately, um, you know, I can only give the, the, the real sort of assessment of what happens. And it's, a, it's, and it's very easy. You get the, the guys come in and what they need to do is get early success. Because mm. what early success does is it gives them that confidence. And um, once you have that confidence, you're willing to bit bigger. And I go back to that initial comment that I made about, you know, understanding where your returns are coming from. Are they coming from your skill or are they coming because the market is providing you that opportunity? And, you know, those, those sort of opportunities where I'll, I'll hold it one more day and then the next day the stock's up 30%, your market's up 30%. Or uh, I went out to lunch with my, with my friend and I decided not to close my position and I came back and the thing skyrocketed. You know, these sorts of things where they're not they're just a random judgment circumstance call. They're not a skill-based or an, an analytical-based judgment. So what happens is, is those guys start to make money, they bet bigger. And then what you get, which is exactly what we saw in the housing market when people started flipping homes, they start going, this is, this is when the danger period comes. I'm going to quit my job. Why do I want to go and work for Uncle Sam and, you know, and everybody else? And uh, when I can make more money in a faster period now, and they get that, you saw, saw it in 99, and like I said, you see it in other industries where it's what's called easy money. And when the easy money starts getting made, um, people start thinking about closing, you know, quitting their jobs to do it full time. I even during the height of the housing, um, you know, boom that we had here locally, I had a friend who um, had a successful um, marketing agency who was willing to shut down the business to go into house and apartment uh, renovations, um, such the, the money that she was making on the side with that, with that sort of thing. And when you, that's what happens. And then, then unfortunately, they're the guys that get hot, you know, end up holding the, and then you hear the horror stories thereafter. So it, it, you, that's, that's how the story plays out. But it will be the biggest bubble we've ever seen. I, I, have, I have no doubts about it. You can't have all of this liquidity also having so much smart money exit the market. The Stanley Druckenmiller, mm. Warren Buffett, all these guys told us, you know, uh, the, the Gunlaks of the world were all telling us about but how... Warren Buffett, oh, he doesn't know anything anymore. What are you talking about? <laughs> they told us we're all going to go revisit the lows and we're going to go lower and lower and so forth. But it's an understanding sometimes of these market dynamics. And, again, this is the sort of thing that will, will, uh, will result. And so you will have one of the biggest bubbles we've ever seen. It's going to be largely tech-based. I still think you're even in the infancy of it, um, to be truly honest. And I think there will be other repercussions in terms of other markets. We'll also experience big bubbles, gold, silver, obviously um, very obvious ones um, that I think that most people are probably aware of by now. Um, but you will see one of the biggest bubbles. Um, but again, you know, people always get fear when you say the word bubble because people always think, well, bubble bursts and yes they do but you know if you were too scared and you saw a bubble forming in the middle of 1999 
you, and you decided not to participate, you missed out on doubling your money just on the index. So, yeah. you know, it's a bit like, you know, and the other, the other sort of, you know, um, comparison that I make, it's like turning up to a party at 10 p.m. and then still, and then running around trying to organise how you're going to get home. Like, just worry about that at 4 a.m. Like, enjoy mm. the next five <laughs> hours, but, <laughs> you know. Obviously, you look out for the signs of what you will, you know, what you, you know, of, of fear, and that's where technical analysis can help a lot because sometimes the mm. fundamentals are going to look ridiculous the whole way through, um, you know, but you just got to understand it is a bubble. This time it's not different. You know, you always hear those, those, those words, this time it's different, etc. cetera. It, it, you know, things won't make sense, and, um, but again, it's you, you, the late stages of any bull market, it's purely a game of I'm going to buy something now at a ridiculous price. Hopefully I can sell it to somebody more ridiculous than me for a more ridiculous price. Craig, you just, you sound the, just like a, uh, a VC. Sorry? I was just going to say you sound just like a VC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, look, I think everybody after you've, uh, you know, you've gone through the, 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 the cycle a few times, you sort of tend yeah. to understand, you know. Yeah. The puppet, you've Sorry, turned the puppet in the ring. I, I totally um, interrupted you. Greg, so what, are the, what are the indicators you think um, that you'll be looking out for um, in terms of the bubble or the party coming, the party looking like it's about to end? Okay, um, there's a couple of things. Number one is the bond market. The bond market is one of the, the, the clear signals. The bond market uh, gave signals in January of some sort of market route occurring. Now, obviously, you know, people say, oh, you know, did it, you, you couldn't have predicted COVID, but no. The bond market started to see, started to rally, i.e. in price, and, in, and in, um, yields started to fall, and I, I wrote an article about that back in January. Um, about that it was starting to, to see a, an element of flight to, to safety. And what you, what you tend to see, this happened after 1998 when we had the Russian debt crisis. And uh, if I can spend a few minutes on that, what you had back then is in 1998 you had a big crisis. Um, Russia defaulted on its bonds. You know, long-term capital management started to struggle. You had Bankers Trust was one of the banks that was certainly suffering quite significantly. And there was a real, at the time, a real big fear and uh, of a, a systemic collapse in the financial system as a result. And Alan Greenspan came out and he did a rate cut between meetings. And um, back then that was a, you know, it's largely a big deal. You don't do that unless there's some sort of crisis. So there's evidence of the crisis. And so you had this huge sort of flight to bonds. And then, you know, and, and throughout the 90s, you had this sort of low inflation, Volcker, you know, um, the former Fed president sort of killed inflation with high interest rates of the 80s. And slowly as inflation fell, real interest rates dropped as they continued to cut rates. And that's what fueled the 90s boom. Post-98, what you had was bond yields then started to correlate positively, not inversely, they started to correlate positively throughout 1999 with the stock market. And what that meant was, was that bond yields started to go react not to what inflation was measure, it became a reflection of economic performance. Eventually, the interest rates got too high and the market bubble burst. 
But interestingly, bonds started to show, again, a little bit of that sign first. So what we're going to see here now is we're going to see the Fed being caught in a very similar sort of position. So people always say, oh, the Fed's coming to the market's aid. But you've got to remember the market, the Fed is there to create liquidity for the market and to do two other things, or two things, create a stable financial market system. And the other thing is to create full employment. People forget that. So the Fed isn't going to turn off these taps until 30 million Americans find jobs. It's impossible for them to provide any sort of argument, irrespective of the other ramifications. That's why you had the Greenspan's famous comment in 96 about irrational exuberance, because that he could only say it. He couldn't do anything. And again, these, these central bankers have pushed themselves into a corner. So what we're going to see eventually is the economy starting to boom, we're going, and we've already started to see bond yields starting to lift a little. Uh, a little. We're going to see, you know, inflation starting to come back in, in in different elements. I mean, I'm not. You may not see it in terms of the price of your suit going up, but you will see. You know, we still will see corn and you know other uh, soft commodity prices. We'll see base metal prices going up. Um, we've already started to see um, housing. The cost of the average American house now to be build um, has gone up by eight to twelve thousand dollars because of lumber prices. Um, so we're going to see that sort of thing, and and bond yields are going to reflect that sort of sort of push up, um, and and that the improvement in the economy, and it's going to get to a, it will get to a point. I still think it's probably another hundred basis points, maybe one hundred and fifty basis points higher, but the stock market will obviously reflect better economic conditions. Bond yields will reflect that as well. But at some point, because we're so indebted um, now, um, the sensitivity to that will, will come home to roost at some point. Now, I can't tell you whether it's going to be when the you know, US 10-year yields are 2% or 2.5% or 3%. I can't tell you. But there will be a six-month period where both of them will be able to enjoy a great dance um, but make sure um, I'll be making sure that I'm close to a chair when the music stops. Yeah. So, Greg, so that's interesting. So, so your entire thesis on this, for lack of a better word, is that the Fed is going to continue pumping in liquidity into the market until the unemployment rate drops, which could take a long time, and that your observing effectively uh, you, you'd expect the market to go up a little bit at this point in time and then eventually the music will stop and you're, and you're going to be on the short side. Is that kind of how I'm reading what you're saying? Is that right? Correct, except there's, um, I would say that um, um, I would challenge the little bit part with a lot, um, okay. I think. But again, it's going to be a big difference. We're going to see, and look, I mean, I... I I've always gone out and on limbs and made big calls and big statements before, and I'm not going to shy away from it in front of, in front of your lit listeners. But I don't think it's going to be too long before the Nasdaq trades at a higher percent, higher number of points than the Dow. Mm. I would not be surprised in this bubble if the Nasdaq 100 has higher number points than uh, than the Dow. And again, you know, the Dow, the Dow, the way the Dow's calculated and the way the Dow, you know, is exposed, it's not exposed to, you know, overly exposed to tech. Um, and particularly, you know, with uh, the effect that, you know, 
people forget that the, that the Dow is not created by um, a market cap. It goes by share price. So, you know, a stock with $500 share price has a far more greater effect than Apple does, even if Apple, you know, particularly after its stock split. So, again, um, you know, so we're going to have this huge sort of, you know, influx or sort of concentration of where all that money is going to go. So, so yes, you've summed it up, you know, quite perfectly. Now, you know, the next question would probably be, well, what are the risks to that particular view? And I think particularly the, the main risk will be who's in the White House. Yeah. I mean, that, and, and again, this is the other thing for oh. traders you know, and newbie traders to, to certainly, I think, to understand. And the way that I approach it is what are the known knowns? What are the things that I can react to and I can, and, and, and I can certainly um, understand and control? What are the things I can control? I can, you know, and what can I, um, and what do I know? Now, I don't know who's going to be in the White House. I mean, you know, we saw what happened with, um, uh, in the last election with, obviously, Hillary Clinton and, and Donald Trump. And going into that election, it was sell the rally if Hillary was going to come in and I would buy the dip if Donald Trump would win. And I think, again, here you've probably got sort of, you know, a similar sort of situation where if Donald Trump gets in, I think the party can go on for quite some time. The question mark around Biden was is whether he wins the, the Senate as well. So I know we're going off on a little bit of a tangent away from trading. But, again, these are question marks, and that, that's probably where I would see that any risks to that view you know, would be surrounded. Can I ask you The market doesn't care. Yeah. So you've got, you got two guys. Donald Trump's younger brother died recently, age 71. Joe Biden's forgetting speeches. Is the whole election, like, are you looking for the presidents or are you looking for the vice presidents to probably become presidents because one of those two guys will die in the next four years or both? Look, look to be truly honest, I haven't, uh, I haven't considered that at this stage um, <laughs> about, you know, the, 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 the presidents, either president dropping dead. Um, I think, look, the biggest problem with... I mean, I think Donald Trump Brad, is a little bit like Leonard. He'll probably be alive for a long time sitting in a museum, yeah. lying in a museum somewhere. <laughs> Correct, correct. But look, at the end of the day, it's not so much about Biden, but it's more so about the policies and yeah. trying to unwind taxes, etc. Now, one of the things that people got to understand as well is is that it, it's politics. It's you know, it and and the way politics works is you continue to to talk a big game in terms of what you're going to do to get winners, to get support from your own constituents, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So that's what Biden's doing at the moment. But then once you get in, you know, these big companies have got a, lobby, a lot of lobbying power. And then all of a sudden you start mm. to tone it down thereafter. And particularly, you know, look, Donald Trump had both control of the Senate and the House of Representatives when he first got in. How long did it take him to get through his tax initiatives? How long did it, he, what about getting rid of Obamacare? I mean, how long, you know, like these things, even when he had control of both, the, uh, of both, it still took him forever. So, again, you know, these are things that are certainly still, you know, down the road. Now, I am aware that August and September and October are very volatile months, and I'm aware that, you know, we're likely to see some volatility to, you know, that could come in and sort of spoil the, the trend a little bit at this point in time. 
Um, so you've got to, you know, look at things a little bit cautiously. But, you know, again, you know, you run with the thematics that, that you see and, um, you know, that's, that's uh, you know. So, so what are you trading at the moment and how are you, obviously, you know, you've, you've expressed that you're bullish but cautious. Um, are you are you protecting your portfolios? Are you going with straight futures? Um, I mean, what what does it look like at the moment? Okay, so I I tend to run a much more con- concentrated portfolio. If I want diversity, I just go by the index. The advantage of buying yeah. an index, index futures, is that at any point in the day I can get out. That's one of the best advantages. You know, if something changes. You know, plane flies into a building. Whatever it is you can get out. You can make a very quick decision. You can make an adjustment very quickly. If you want diversity, that's what you do. And if you want leverage, that's a good place to go too because with leverage, you want to make sure that you're not exposed to any individual stock risk where anything can happen, you know, um, you know that, that can certainly affect a single stock, whereas, you know, the impact on an index is obviously, you know, much more widespread. I, so I always, you know, always sit in... in, in disbelievement as I watch people have a view and then go trade something completely different to it. If you believe the market's going up, just buy the market. If you think it's going to go down, short the market. Don't go and short a bank or short BHP. Short the market because BHP can go up when the market's going down. You know, like people, you know, they say I'm bullish gold and then they go and buy some speculative gold explorer. Like just go buy gold. If gold's going to go up, and your view is right, you will make money. There's no guarantee that that, that little explorer will make will, will make money. So, again, um, um, so I trade very sort of a lot more concentrated portfolios. I think that diversification is um, is a hedge against ignorance. I think uh, Warren Buffett said that himself. So, um, again, you look at any of the successful people anywhere in, in, in business or anything, they've made it all from one thing. Gary Packer made it from media. James Packer didn't like media. He did it in gaming. You look at the Lowys, it's all very much concentrated. You look at uh, Andrew Forrest, you know, look at any of these guys. Anyone in business all made it. It wasn't diversification. Even as they get, you know, mammothly rich, they're still not diversifying. So, again, uh, concentrated portfolios is, is, is where you, uh, you make the money. But how you build a concentrated portfolio is a skill in itself and be able to do that with lower risk. So, you know, one of the questions, obviously, next was how you, do you do that? Well, you know, if I've got a position that I say, for example, I want, you know, 30% of my portfolio to be exposed to this one trade. Okay, well, I'm not going to go and buy 30%, you know, of that stock straight away. Or sorry, I should let's just let's go in dollar terms. So I've got a hundred thousand dollars, and I'm going to go put thirty grand all in one stock, or forty grand all in one stock. Well, I'm not going to go buy forty grand's worth straight away because all of a sudden, what I've done is I have become a hostage to my timing, mm. and um, and then there's and there's no, nothing I can do about it. Whereas if I think that if I've got my timing relatively right, I might go and spend let's say break it up into you know, three sort of roughly equal trades of, say, $15,000 each or $12,500 each, and I'll go buy my first position. And therefore, if I'm wrong with my timing, then I've only exposed myself to a smaller amount. And obviously, if I'm right, I have the confidence to add to that position. One of my general rules that I have is I don't add to losing positions, just a no-no. 
Absolutely no, no. It's one of the biggest things that have saved me in my career in trading before. And every time I've generally broken that rule has been a, uh, a to, to, to my own personal detriment. So again, I don't add to losing positions. It's a, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's just, it, in, in all in essence, it's a stupid thing to do. Um, you know, if you're, if you're only add to your winners, um, and you and you do that, then you're going to avoid some of your you know wrong decisions. You know you get stopped out on a much smaller position, and if you decide to dig your heels in and lower your stop and not even use stops and believe that it's eventually going to turn around, you're doing so with a much smaller position um, than you are. And then when you and if you're adding to your winning positions, they continue to win. Um, so you know in that example, I then add you know, a little bit more as the stock continues to push up. And if I'm using technical analysis, for example, and I'm looking for areas where the trend sort of pauses and then starts to break out again to a flag or a pennant or whatever it is, you add at those sort of explosive points when the market's looking to sort of accelerate a little bit. And again, you can then build a reasonable position, um, you know, quite significantly. If it's something that you're really excited about, you might buy 50 or 60% of the position initially to anchor a position so that when you average into it later, you're not dragging your average entry price up too high. Um, these are all things to consider, obviously, as you, you know, um, evolve your, your, your trading, you know, techniques. But again, that's one way that I use in terms of, uh, you know, adding and, and building a, a concentrated portfolio. And then if I get extra bullish, then I'll go buy index futures on top of that to give me just that extra market exposure. So just to, so it sounds almost like you're a breakout trader and you pyramid in into your trades. Is that fair? Correct. You, in, in an essence, I would probably say that, that uh, at, at the core of when I'm, you know, clicking the buy and sell button, that's predominantly, you know, what I would say I'm doing. Just like Jesse Livermore, um, except hopefully risk-adjusted, a lot less risky. Um, so uh, what have you got? So when, when you're looking, uh, you mentioned that you're generally psycho, you know, you're looking at psychological swings and whatever else. Are you predominantly, um, do, you, do you look at technical analysis or is it purely price action for you and, and, and what's happening in the depth um, to make decisions like that? Oh, look, it's a lot. It, it's much more sentiment driven, more so. So I'm looking more at technical analysis. I'm going more from what I'm hearing in terms of um, sentiment indicators. Um, it's certainly what I'm hearing from my. You know, we've all got one of those market indicators. You know, that sits in their office. The guy that always gets bullish at the high and bearish at the low, and you know. If, you're going to take take one person onto a trading island. You take this guy because you know he always gets a point. You have to just take the opposite side. Um, the guy that you just want to be book, you know, in the office. But I, 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 think, uh, I think I worked with the guy that you have been talking about. But anyway, but we've all got one of those. If you, don't, if you don't have one, and as they say, if you don't have one, then you are that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Um, so look, at, you know, in all seriousness, um, uh, yeah. Look, I look at uh, sentiment. I look at, um, you know, I, I've got, I, look, I watch a lot of CNBC. Um, I talk to a lot of people, 
and and uh, and I start to get a, a little bit of um, indication as well when um, you know even just little things like when you know the front page of the Fin Review is running a big story on how the Aussie dollars finally got to a certain level, you know, and those those sorts of things. There's just there's 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 certain areas of the market now. People forget that you're not going to be able to read a lot of that day to day. It's in those five to seven big periods a year. So, like for example. You know the big, huge, you know, collapse that we had in, you know, COVID. That was a big psychological um, essence of um, extreme bearishness, extreme fear. Um, everybody one-sided um, is is a perfect example of that. Um, and again, you know, we, you know, and then you get the disbelievers um, as well as as markets rally too. And so, you know, again, there's. As you get more experienced, you know, you tend to, you know, know where to look and, 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 and can, you know, uh, you've seen enough of these. Yeah, it's a bit like knowing, you know, the storm, you know, you know what to look for, you know, grey clouds, you know, birds <laughs> starting to get panic in the, in, you know, you don't necessarily need to always listen to the weatherman, even though he's as uh, predictive as an economist as well. He gets it about it just as right. So. <laughs> <laughs> Especially the, the Victorian um, weatherman. Got a, a couple of questions for you. Uh, Lindsay's asked, and you'll note a lot of people on the session tonight will be options traders. And Lindsay's asked, do options play a role in your investing universe? Yes, they do. I use options quite a bit. Um, I usually use options when I sometimes when I when I've got a particularly very strong view, there are some option strategies that I may use, particularly if I think that um, there is going to be a significant rise. So one of the um, option strategies that I I like to do is I like to sell an in the money put spread, and then I turn around and I take that money and I go buy three or four, or sometimes depending on what strikes I've got four or five times the number of calls at the upper end of that um, put spread. So what that does is that it sort of, you know, provides the funding for your long position, but then your long position is excessively skewed that you've got, you know, this free run on the upside once your, um, uh, you know, you once your position starts to move in your direction and you can have, a you know, some significant sort of big sort of trend-following type of positions as a result with that, with that, uh, with that style. So again, um, I like to sell options in high volatility times. So for example, after you have a big, typically during a big market correction, um, you know, <laughs> you get some excessively great premium that you can enjoy during those sorts of periods. Um, so yeah, sometimes I do. And, and the other time that I use options quite a bit is around earnings season. Um, you know, you never know what's going to happen sometimes with some, you know, companies when they report. And even though, even when you do, you may not even know how the market's going to react to it. So there is often that um, times that that's a, a relatively lower risk way of, for lack of a better word, punting a uh, 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 an earnings result. Um, do I use them? I use them. An, uh, sorry, are you talking about um, using a straddle or something like that when going into earnings season, or you take a directional view? Um, no, I usually will take a directional view in, 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 my, in, in, in my position. You can do straddles, obviously, but I tend to, I tend to because I do a, quite a bit of homework um, and I'm only going into the stocks where I think I've got a view, a, a particular view on it, 
um, then that's where I'll, I, I will generally take a directional trade with you. I am more of a directional trader. Um, anything that's sort of stuck in a bit of a range is what I call time off. So that's when I go to cash and that's when I um, get some of that sleep that I've been missing and that's when I spend more time with the, with the family. And, uh, and, that's, uh, uh, and, that's, and like anything, that's what I call my off-season, just like athletes. You know, people forget that, um, you know, trading, you know, trading markets are open pretty much 24-7, 250 days of the year. And if you're trading cryptocurrencies, they're open 365 days of the year. And um, you can get burnout. You can get blinded in terms of, um, you know, caught up in the day-to-day -day volatility and really not assessing, you know, where the general direction and trends are and where they're moving and where they're going. And so you need time off away from the market to, to make sure that, again, when those five or seven big times come to make money in the market, there's going to be a big, big push. You are there primed in the best condition, the most focused uh, to capitalise on those. Yeah. Um, Mark's asked, do you look at the VIX? Uh, does it you know, play a role in uh, your decision-making or how you react to things? Yes, it does. But again, VIX is similar to currencies. I will only use the VIX maybe three or four times, five times a year. Generally, between those periods, the VIX largely doesn't give much um, doesn't give much indication for me anyway. Um, other people may find it successful, and we've got some you know bold traders in our office, and uh, you know they're constantly sort of you know trading the VIX around. But for me, it's more finding those extremes. I VIX very very high or alternatively when the VIX is extremely low. Now, one of the key traps I find with the VIX is, is that people think that just because something's low, it's going to go back up. It's a bit like with stocks as well. People think that when something's cheap, it automatically means it's a great buy because it's going to go up. But it may stay cheap for a long time, and you know, obviously we've seen many times how the VIX has stayed low for a, for a long period, excessive period. But if you can combine the VIX with some of those other signals, so, for example, the bond yields providing those signals of where there was a bit of a flight of quality occurring in late December, early January, and throughout January you sort of started to see bond yields ticking lower, and they weren't going down for any particular specific reason, combined with a very, very low, you know, narrow VIX, um, provided you that opportunity to buy some cheap VIX calls, and we've seen how the likes of your... Um, your Bill Aikmans and so forth have made, you know, a lot of VIX guys made a lot of money because it just exploded. So sometimes you need to wait for other signals to give yourself the VIX, um, you know, reward that uh, have come. So that's one reason why I only look at it several times, only a few, several times. Like I constantly look at it, I should say, but in terms of actually executing a trade on the VIX, um, or, um, yeah, it's only a few times a year. Okay. Um, it, I just... Um, if anyone's got any further questions, please type them into the chat box. But uh, again, if anyone would like to get information about Greg's fund and, and what they do and follow his story and news and so forth, just type Greg into the chat box and make sure that we get um, your details across to him. Um, all right. Um, you mentioned something earlier that I wanted to come back to, which was about um, you had a sports psychologist who had come and given you advice. Um, I'm a big fan of getting any advice I can get from any quarter. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, how, how has that worked for you and, and how do you engage 
um, with this person. Okay, so um, in my career um, from trading, I've only had one losing year and I only had two losing quarters in a row. And most people start to say, oh, was it the GFC or anything else like that? No, my losing quarter was when my son was born. Because prior <laughs> to that, um, psychologically, you know, you're young, you're a bit of a cowboy, you have success, um, particularly if, you know, you have even a little bit of skill and the market conditions are right, you can, you know, you can do reasonably well. And I certainly was lucky enough to be in that, uh, in that category. And, um, you know, my wife worked and, um, you know, and, you know, and even if I stuffed up, you know, the bills were still getting paid. So there's literally, you know, you can trade with that element of freedom that, um, that uh, quite often doesn't come when you, um, uh, you know, when you've got bills to pay, et cetera, which just let me just circle back to the point about what one of the other important points about, um, you know, newbies to trading. One of the other things I would say is, is that if you want to become a trade and trade for a living, make sure that you have at least 12 months of capital set aside to pay for all your bills. This is not trading capital. This is a separate account that has all your bills to pay because the stress and the, the, the belief that you think that you can make $1,000 a day, $2,000 a day, $5,000 a week, $10,000 a month consistently when you start is just not going to it's you you'll be very you'll be one of the lucky ones <laughs> put it that way so it's very important for your own career and your own ex, you know getting into this industry to do that and so that's why I, my losing year was when my son was born because all of a sudden I was trading with this view that I had to make money and um, I you know I was under the pressure of my wife wasn't working anymore so my position sizes dropped and then I started taking my, my profits too early. And then I was still getting stopped out the same way that I was before. And all of a sudden that skewed all my returns. And I started to struggle. And it was a losing year. And, I, you know, it wasn't a massively losing year, but it was one of those years which was just very, very tough. It was one of those ones where, you know, you'd make a dollar, you know, on my longs and I'm still getting stopped out losing $3. And with the lack of confidence as well, it was it was a struggle, and um, so I thought to myself, you know what, this is one of those times where you've got to look at things a little bit differently. And, and again, I've always been a sports kind of guy, um, you know, ever since I was a kid, and I continue to you know play different sports and whatnot, and watch them and religiously. And I thought to myself, well, look, you look at all these professional athletes. They have skills coaches, they have nutritionists, they have strength coaches, they have the coach of the team, they have all these support mechanisms. And even if they do perform poorly, they still make 30 million pounds a year, right? So, and here I am as a trader having to feed my family and, and if I stuff up, I'm going to lose my house. So I need help. And so, and I don't want someone to come in and tell me about, you know, a trading psychologist or somebody else who has knowledge of the market because they're, all of a sudden this conversation can skew very quickly into how I'm trading. I don't want someone to give me an assessment of my knowledge or my techniques or anything. I know they work. It's, it was all psychological based. So I went and um, uh, spent time with the uh, probably the leading sports psychologist here in, here in Australia. He's worked with the Australian Olympic team, both the Australian rugby union team, the Australian cricket team, Olympic swimmers, um, NBA players, 
APT Tour tennis players, etc. And I, I see him regularly. I started seeing him in 2013. Um, uh, well, even actually before that, 2013 was um, pretty much where I started seeing him just regularly. And uh, even if things were going going well, still saw him, you know, once every couple of weeks, um, once a week, and uh, and I've been doing, and it's just transformed everything that I do. We put everything into a sporting analogy, but at least it um, it, it gets my, me focused and my head right. And certainly over the last, you know, it's been sort of eight years now, we've also evolved the way I do things um, too. So again, um, it's it's one of those things that uh, I think uh, is is the most underrated area of uh, of trading. Still, even though it gets a lot of attention, I still think it is the the the, the one and. I've said it before and I'll continue to repeat it. I've made more money from markets, understanding market psychology than I have through any other technique. Um, and that's because the big money is made at those extreme market volatility periods. Yeah. Um, is there any books or anything you would recommend uh, people read? Um, yeah, look, um, that's probably a good question. It's a very good question. So, um, I'm unfortunately not one of those people that remembers, and it's probably showing my age as well, remember many of these things off the top of my head. There's only a certain amount of stuff that I can keep up here. Um, there's, um, uh, oh, look, there's, there's a couple of books um, on, on, on sports, uh, sorry, on actual trading psychology, which are, are reasonably useful. But the ones that I found most useful are ones that actually have nothing to do with trading. I don't know what it is that for me. So other books that are more motivational books, psychological, um, and uh, tend to have been more useful to me. I mean, one of the, the, the great books that I think have uh, been written is um, one by David Goggins, Can't Hurt Me. I mean, I don't know if either of you have uh, come across him or his books. I mean, He's an incredible, incredible human being, but it just shows you again that um, you know, getting that callousing the mind, and and uh, he certainly comes to uh, pushing the physical elements of his body um, from a psychological point of view. Being a former Navy SEAL, um, and again, that's um, you know one of those those books that um, to me sort of reson resonates more with me. It may not with others, but with me, it, it, it certainly, it certainly did. And so um, I pulled yeah, David, David Goggins can't hurt me. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. So no, um, I'll pick that up. Great. Excellent. Just on that, I was just going to say, he did a couple of podcasts with Joe Rogan, which you can get on YouTube if you wanted to, um, if, if you before buying the book, if you didn't want to go down that path, but you'll sort of understand where the guy came from, what he did. I mean, I know totally amazing and I mean I'm probably doing it an injustice in terms of the certainly the physical elements of what he's been able to do and then when you sit there and you know you asked me the question before Ivan about um, staying up all night and you just think to yourself that's just that's nothing in in, in comparison so uh, <laughs> um, so yeah Greg, I remember when I was well, when I was training full full time I mean I was, I was getting my advice from you know reading books of like Van Tharp and uh, and sort of trading psychology I can't believe you get your tips from a sports psychologist and a Navy SEAL like, I mean that's, that's uh, <laughs> I can just well, imagine you kind of, you know properly uh, as they like to say trading in the zone like you just you must be yeah look that's a, that's a great book. Book. Elder's book is quite good so but again look you know 
you in trading is one of those other things as well that um, you know there's certain lessons that you know I can you know you, you pass on and and one of those things as well is is that you can need to find a trading style that fits your own personality you know yeah. too many people try and emulate other people's trading like for example me I can never emulate Warren Buffett's trading strategy I'm too I cannot buy and hold something for that long I mean I can't sit still for very for very long so there's no way <laughs> I can be able to hold a position for 50 years there's just no chance um, so you know that's one thing that you need that you know um, traders need to understand as well is is finding stuff that works within their own personality and, and things that they resonate with I think if you had enough money to go in and buy a big chunk of a bank and uh, that would be one of the smaller positions in your portfolio, I think that you'd be able to sit 50 years on it. You'd just call up the CEO every couple of weeks and go, how's it going? How's my position? Exactly. <laughs> a different style. Uh, that's what I love about people who go, you know, just, you just, just, that's fine. Just, just trade just like uh, Warren Buffett. Trade Warren Buffett style. Sure, if you had a couple of billion dollars, then maybe you could do it. Um, but, you know... One of the things that I always say with my trading and in terms of probably different to certain fund managers is one of the first things I always get asked on the first day of the year is, well, where's the index going to be at the end of the year? And it's, it's like saying, and I always say, I can tell you what the weather's going to be like tomorrow with far more accuracy than I can tell you what the weather's going to be like on Christmas Day. And so I take that same approach. As long as I like the company and I continue to reassess my positions every week, I'll stick with it. If it continues to be a winner and I like it, I'll stick with it. So I may, I've may i held positions for three years, but during that three-year process, I've always reassessed it at least once a month or once a quarter and said, "Is do, do I still want to own this? And if I'm going to get out, well, then what else am I going to do with that money? Can I find something better than that? as well and so I've had positions that I have run with for considerable lengths of time because they've continued to to be winners so did I enter the trade thinking I was going to own it for three years no um, I went into there thinking I was going to own it for three months or six months or you know or, or three weeks but as long as they're continuing to perform and I've built greater confidence in in maintaining that exposure and again that concentrated portfolio um, they're the, you know, they've been winners for me, and I, I would never ever say that I'm a long-term investor at all. <laughs> Out of the 50 billion trades that I've done, you could probably count 10 that I've owned longer than 12 months. So, you know, <laughs> your trading style sounds very similar to mine. Um, not quite as short-term as Patrick, who never holds on to any winners, but, you know, I thought I'd sneak it in there. Um, so, hey, so in terms of traders that uh, probably spring to mind, traders that inspire you, uh, surely there's got to be more than just Gotten Gecko. Oh, look, of course. I mean, um, you know, when I, when, when I was really sort of, you know, really sort of concentrating on improving my trading technique and trading styles, etc. I mean, Stanley Druckenmiller and George Soros were, were the two. I mean, the ability to sort of see something that's going to unfold and then having the tenacity and the, the intestinal fortitude to take such large positions because, you know, it's and, and doing so with such confidence that in their view, if you ask them, you know, putting those trades on when they broke the Bank of England, I mean, any ordinary person would sit there and say, well, that's, ex- <laughs> you know, that's extremely risky. 
But you ask George Soros and he would go, no, it's, it was low risk. And it's a bit like yeah. when people jump. It's a bit like when people jump out of a plane. Like, there's no way I'm going to do it. It's too risky for me. But I <laughs> ask somebody, somebody who's done it a thousand times. Mm. To him, it's you know, it's like collecting mail from the the, the, the letterbox. So you know, it's it, it's it's all perception and how many times you've been exposed to something that make that uh, that difference. Mm. So again, um, you know, the Stanley Druckenmiller's, you know, again, very big macro top down sort of guys who. Um, you know, who take big positions um, have been ones that uh, have certainly were the ones that I tried to emulate at least in my the early part of uh, of my career, and I, I still continue to do so from that um, from that point of view. Hmm. It'd be, I mean, it's interesting, and, and I know we're sort of we're well over time, as always. I think we should probably just allocate an hour and a half for these sessions. <laughs> but um, it's interesting, like you know, those guys like Soros, I think, has been short the index for like I don't know four years, five years, and just continuously scaling into it. Um, I mean, yeah. he's obviously got a, he's a perma bear and he doesn't, he wants to break the Fed now, but. Yeah, well, look, I think, um, I think sometimes when, when George Soros first started in his career, and this is one of those things, again, you know, you don't always view people with the same sort of rose colored glasses throughout their careers that, you know, everyone has that sort of shining moments and, you know, winning sort of periods that they, they do, they do very well in. And, you know, athletes are exactly the same, you know, and, um, you know, you get into your twilight years. And I think for George Soros, I think there was, there's a lot of political motivation that he had. And I think that he was quite willing to um, short the index. He was shorting it while he was backing Hillary Clinton. So I think there's a lot more political games behind his protests. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Rolls and whatever else. Yeah. Exactly. So to me, I don't think that he is a pure trader, so to speak, mm. as he once was. So again, um, you know, I've, I've since uh, in the last decade or more have, uh, you know, forged my own path. <laughs> pass on to my children so i'm going to uh i'm going to uh call a session to a halt in just one moment it's just um greg fantastic session really enlightening we'd love to get you back again at some point in time maybe um we we might narrow in on a couple of targets regarding the market and get your thoughts on that um i think people would get a lot from that we'd love to get some more contribution into our network of traders um invaluable insights and I think a lot of common themes, Greg, when we have these sessions, we talk to traders like yourself um, and we talk about, I guess we, when Ivan and I talk about trading amongst ourselves, we spend most of the time talking about our behaviours and how we arrive at decisions and, and how we observe information and, and, and these types of things and, you know, incongruent with uh, absolute congruency with, with what you're saying and how you look at it. So it's an interesting game uh, that we play in and I think your, your input tonight was much appreciated. I want to say again, there's quite a few people who requested more information from Greg. I'll get that across to you. Those that um, haven't typed in Greg already and want, would like to get some information, do so. And we, we know, as a lot of the people come to these sessions, they're introduced to our friends in the industry. Um, and uh, I, I know a lot of people that have got a lot of um, very positive things to say about Greg and how he goes about his trading and the results that he's been able to achieve over, over a very long period of time. So I would encourage you to follow him. Um, one final question, because I'm interested in the answer to this as well. Um, what, where do you think the, what do you think the future for gold is? Oh, look, I think gold's going to continue to head higher. I mean, it may have pauses, it may have brief, um, you know, 
pullbacks. But I think that, again, with what the Fed is doing, um, gold itself will, uh, you know, will continue to head higher. Will it hit 3,000, 4,000, 5,000? I mean, um, you know, that's, I don't have any sort of, you know, firm grasp of where that could be. The real question you should be asking, though, is what is silver going to do? And to me, silver, it could be a bit of a double whammy. Now, remember, silver is used in a lot of, silver has all the benefits of gold um, in terms of obviously being a precious metal, but it's also, it has the potential to have that real sort of tailwind of being a tech metal too, because silver is used in a lot of um, electronic components, solar panels, so forth. So again, with that green movement um, and the tech and obviously fitting in with what uh, the area of the stock market or in the equity market that's going to be moving, silver could really be in a real sort of, you know, sweet spot. And when silver's in a sweet spot, you know, anyone can go back and look at a long-term chart, silver goes berserk. It so, runs. Yeah, and it runs and it runs very aggressively and it plays catch-up. So. You think about where silver and gold were in comparison, you know, as a ratio um, and where they have been historically. Silver has been a, um, um, is certainly still very much undervalued compared to gold. And so in this cycle, we could easily see some of those um, common ratios over uh, history come back to the norm. And so that would mean silver, you know, 100 bucks. I don't know, like, you know, again, some of these things can go crazy. So, uh that's 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 that to me is the real one to uh, to be watching. All right, beautiful, excellent. All right, Greg, uh, good to see you. Um, we'll speak to you soon, no doubt. Thank you very much for taking the time. Um, leave last word with you. No pleasure, Patrick and Ivan. It's um, it's always great to uh, to talk and uh, talk markets and uh, love nothing more to come back. <laughs> excellent. That's- that sounds like a, lot. a whole heap of people I want to talk to you afterwards as well. So, <laughs> yeah. well, that'll be that'll be great. Cheers, guys. Thanks for everyone for taking the time. Cheers. Good night. Yeah.